Men don't win at work because they are inherently better, more intelligent or more capable. But they have been playing and practicing this game called work a lot, lot longer than women. And as things stand, they're still getting significantly more practice and experience. And they'll continue to do so unless some important and profound things change to break the self-fulfilling prophecy. Welcome to That's What She Read. I'm Valentina, and what I just quoted is an excerpt from Why Men Win at Work by Jill Whitty Collins. I'm a strong advocate for diversity, inclusion, and equality. And I was really curious to read what Jill talks about in her book on how we can practice and become better at this game called work without pretending to be something that we are not. And how we can be reaching those top positions like the super 7% of women that made it to the top that she interviewed. To bring you a bit more perspective, this week I've changed the format of the podcast and we'll be having an interactive and unusually longer episode. So we are here today with uh, Jill Whitty-Collins, who I've met back in my days at Procter & Gamble when I was a really, really, really junior analyst, I have to say, really green, straight out of university. Um, And she was uh, quite the uh, experience and role model leader already uh, back then that I always looked up to. And I'm really honored that I have this chance to interview her for the podcast to talk about her book, Why Men Win at Work. So Jill, welcome to the podcast and uh, thank you for uh, being here with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's, it's great to have reconnected after all these years, Valentina. So I have a question to ask you. This is really personal, which is, after all, you, you were a really successful leader, senior vice president of P&G Beauty, 26 years in the industry, and a really action-driven person. So somehow I... Maybe that's my own bias. That tells a lot about my own bias. I didn't see you as as the book writer sitting and writing. So what made you decide to write a book and especially a book on the topic of gender equality and, and diversity and inclusion? You know, I never really saw myself writing a book. I, I, you know, everyone always says they've got a book in them, don't they? I was not a person who, who said that, really. Um, but I actually got to the point where I had to write it. It was sort of became necessary for me to get it all out. Um, I had, um, you know, gone a very long way into my career without ever really, you know, luckily for me being affected personally by the the gender diversity issue Um, and I was you know um, one of those women as I'm ashamed to say who probably didn't prioritize it as much as I should um, because of that Um, it was really um, you know I got to the senior vice president level um, so in you know my my early 40s and that was really the first time that I ever had been in a male dominant culture in my entire life in my entire career 
Um, wow. And that's when I started to see what it meant to be in a male-dominant culture as a woman. I know many women get into that uh, situation much, much earlier in their careers. Uh, I consider myself lucky in a way that I hadn't. Um, and I started to see what that meant and how that impacts you and how that impacted other women that I was watching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I became really a, a bit of a student of it. I was absolutely fascinated by it, actually. What's happening? What is this? What is this change of culture that's impacting us? Uh, read lots of books, read lots of articles. Um, and that made me realize the absolutely enormous extent of it. It really was like opening a can of worms for me, realizing this wasn't about me. It wasn't about the women I was working with. It was absolutely not about PNG or the PNG men. This was happening mm-hmm. everywhere to women everywhere. Um, and they were, you know, starting out, you know, 50% of the population. of the intelligence, 50% of the ability, often 50% of the intake. But at the senior levels, when you looked at leadership, Mm -hmm. 90% plus men. So I just started to really explore this and why. I was really fascinated in why does it happen? What are those Mm -hmm. real under the surface reasons why? Um, And so I just had a head full of stuff that I needed to get down. And um, I promised myself that when I left um, PNG, um, it was the first thing that I was going to do was to write this book. Wow. It's a, it's a really interesting story. And thank you for being so open about, about your journey and your experience. I think we assume sometimes that we have all seen this male-dominated environment, while in reality, some other women simply have not experienced it. Uh, you know, it's not that... Um, they're less interested it's just that for whatever chance they they have not been in the same situations and and sometimes it's hard to see how it impacts your your career and sometimes your own mindset and you know self-esteem and everything around it when you haven't been surrounded by it so and you know it it is as I said you know I'm ashamed to be one of those women you know I was I was brought up I was educated in a um you know um a comprehensive school there were boys Mm -hmm. there were girls um I was lucky to be in a company in a function that was very very balanced from Mm -hmm. a gender point of view up until you know pretty senior level Um, and I think it's really important to me now having had my epiphany and having realized oh Jill you were just lucky that you didn't land in this male dominant culture till later you know one of the things I really say to women now because you do get a lot of women who are you know I call them uh, deniers they have feminist phobia as I say Mm -hmm. and you know it's really important to say to them you know what just because this hasn't affected you, please don't negate the experience of other women, other young women who are telling you that it's affecting them. Do you think it's just because they haven't experienced it or could there be something else going on there? How can we help women which haven't had that epiphany yet to, to, to help us turn it around? I think there are a number of things. I do think in some cases, it's women who've, you know, maybe not experienced it. They've maybe not been in a male dominant culture or for whatever reason, they've managed to do pretty well in a male dominant culture when when they've um, 
hit it. And I think some of those women do have, they probably wouldn't say it, but they do have a slight sense of, I'm not really sure what the problem is because I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is also um, an element of, um, you know, women, I mean, I've seen this, I've experienced this and I've seen it, where women are actually kind of trained by their workplace not to talk about this, not mm. to talk about feminism, not to call themselves feminist, not to speak up about the gender equality issue. You know, I think we've all seen that, you know, and that sense of um, you're better off if you, you mm-hmm. know, you're one of the lads and you're not seen as part of the problem. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of women in fairness have been trained that it's probably not very good for their careers to be the campaigner on this which is really unfortunate yeah um, and they've you know kind of survived largely by not doing that so I think there are a lot of things going on and I do think one of the, the biggest things that we, we have to do you know I always say I, I'm asking a lot from men in all this there's a lot of action plans for men mm-hmm. um, in terms of driving gender equality but there are some things that women can do better and they need to do and I think the the sisterhood um is one of them you know the fact that some women deny the gender equality issue deny other women's experience of the issue um that they don't support each other so when some women get to a senior level they don't hold the ladder down or they shake it so violently that the mm-hmm. other women don't have a chance of hanging on to it. Um, yeah. This one's on women, you know. Yes. Men are supporting each other for lots of reasons that they don't even realise. They're supporting each other. They're supporting the younger versions of themselves to move up through an organisation. And, and often, you know, not supporting younger women for lots of reasons. So if women get to the top and men also don't support other women um and don't stand up for you know the gender equality cause and for saying you know we really do need to get some women on this team then we've got a double whammy um on the problem so I, i think it's really really important i don't know you know, women who are kind of late in their careers now and, and they're, they're, they've got feminist phobia, I'm not sure we can save them. But I think as younger women come through, I think it's a real commitment that they should make to each other. They're not going to deny this. They're not going to stay quiet about this. And when somebody speaks up, they're going to back them rather than looking at their shoes. Yeah, that's, that sounds really true. And, and indeed, sisterhood is one of the strongest things that we can do for each other and, and supporting each other. And I'm I wouldn't give up on on the older women that are at the top, as you say. You know, there is always a point when you look around and you think, well, you know, maybe I'm so established right now that if I start to speak, it's not going to hurt me anymore. So that might be that point of view there also to consider. So let's see. Hopefully having more of this conversation is going to motivate even more women to speak up and so. support. You're right. And, and you know, it is. Um, I, I, you know, I can say from experience, I, I, I thought I was at a senior enough level to be able to fight the fight for mm-hmm. gender equality and for women. And actually, I wasn't. Um, and it was damaging for me. And I was, you know, advised um, wow. that I should back off, which, of course, I didn't. <laughs> um, but I tell you what's, you know, super, super important is not just for women to back each other, but also for for men to back 
women yes. on this and, and it's so powerful when men do it and you know there are a few feminists as I yes. call them out there some amazing men who understand this issue they understand why it happens they understand their you know non-intentional contribution to it and you know when they speak up and and back this it becomes a completely different conversation because then it's not an agenda it's nobody's agenda to mm-hmm. get a job or get a position or to moan or whine or whatever people think we're doing. Um, when a man backs it, it's like, oh, hold on a minute. Why is the man backing this? Maybe this is actually important. Uh, you know, terrible thing to say, but uh, true. And I think when men do it, I could just kiss them. Yep. I see what you mean. So besides this feminist, which are men already open enough to support women on this. When, do, when we meet people that have really maybe unconscious bias that they don't realize, what you think is the best way to have an open and honest conversation with them? You know, the first thing we need to acknowledge um, and internalize is that we all have unconscious bias, every single one of us. Indeed. Um, And, you know, we have unconscious bias about different cultures, different races, different skin colors. Um, And even women have unconscious bias against women. So, you know, I think that's the first thing is just acknowledging um, that as a reality. And in terms of, you know, how to tackle it, you know, an important thing to remember is there is a huge difference between the intentional sexism that we see, which is, uh, it happens. It's very rare. It is very, very rare. And it's very rare in a a good workplace, you know, a decent business and organization. Mm -hmm. Huge difference between that and the unintentional, unconscious stuff that, as you say, comes from unconscious bias. The latter is still very real and it absolutely does hold um, women back. But it's, it's by definition, it's not, in, it's not intentional. So the strategy for dealing with it has to be, be completely different because, you know, you're actually, you're dealing with, with something that somebody often doesn't even realize that they're doing. Um, it, it depends on what it is. I mean, it absolutely depends on what it is and in, and in one, what context. Um, not you know one of the ways unconscious bias obviously hugely shows up is when decisions are being made about who gets a job or who gets a promotion Mm -hmm. um and there is a conclusion as you can see from the data there is very very often the conclusion that the woman or the women candidates were excellent but the man is just a bit little bit better for this job so we'll go for him yes (laughs) tons and tons of reasons why that happens even if let's say in 50% of cases, he wasn't actually um, the, the, the strongest candidate. Um, but, you know, that's one of the classic ways that unconscious bias shows up. The person who's making that decision or the group who's making that decision, they genuinely believe that that is the better candidate because there is so much unconscious and invisible stuff gone on to make them believe that the culture that's supporting the men more than the women, my umbrella theory, which I, I know you and I have exchanged on, yeah. the, the power of confidence versus competence. 
And so it really depends on how it's showing up. But if it's showing up in that way, you really need a very serious intervention in an organization. You know, you, it, that's not about an individual, you know, let, let's have a little conversation about your mm -hmm. unconscious bias. That requires manual interventions in the processes that are used to evaluate um, employees and to decide who gets jobs and who gets promotions. I see. And as you said, it can show in many ways. So from all of your research and your experience, I don't, I don't want to give the whole content of the book away, right? Because I still believe that people, men and women, should definitely read it to get real perspective of how broad this issue is. But if you could summarize what are maybe the top three ways that it shows up, uh, this unconscious bias against, and not necessarily only women, you know, it could be minorities or it could be anybody different than the people on the top. Uh, what would you say that they are? And short of having these type of interventions happening, and I am hopeful that they will start happening more and more, what can we do um, to brace ourselves or against it? So, you know, as said, and obviously, we're, you know, we can't talk about the whole book. Yes. It's 200 pages. But in many ways, you know, the answer to, you know, why does this happen and, 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 and you know, what causes it? Why do men win at work is as simple as because at the end of the day, when these decisions about jobs and promotions are made, The, the person who's making the decision believes that the man is better. Mm -hmm. And so the, the key things um, that are driving that, you know, unconscious bias is absolutely one of them. And, and unconscious bias is driven, as I said, in all of us. And, you know, it's from pretty much from the moment we're born and we're seeing, you know, for example, the way that women are portrayed in the media, um, in TV, in film versus men, huge amounts of data yep. that shows that, you know, men are significantly more likely to be shown in leadership positions, judges, lawyers, doing all of that sexy leadership stuff. Women much more likely to be shown, you know, in the kitchen as mums, um, in the bedroom, Not that there's anything wrong in any of those things, but, it, it, you know, from childhood, that's how we see women and that's how we see men. Um, and so we have these stereotypes of what women are for and what men are for. And we carry those with us. And, you know, the brain is a the brain is a brilliant machine that likes to well, it needs to actually simplify life for us. It takes on so many inputs in a day. It really needs to file things simply. So the brain is not very good at saying woman. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, by the way, attractive woman, um, mother, also absolutely phenomenally brilliant businesswoman. Brain's not very good at doing all of that. In its natural state, it will just quickly file the woman into one of those things. Is she a mom? Is she a mistress? Is she um, a leader? Um, so unconscious bias is something that we, you know, we're, we're, we're just being fed from the beginning of, of, of our lives. And that does absolutely play. I remember a great mentor of mine, Susan Van Vliet, um, saying to me, to me once, 
Um, you know, the problem with being a woman in a leadership, you know, on a board or in a leadership position is you look more like their wife than their business colleague. Um, and, you know, there is sadly some, some truth. So unconscious bias is playing a huge part. But, that you know, there are also other really important, like, dynamics like the invisible power of culture yeah. that I talk about where, you know, if you're in a male dominant culture, if you're in a culture, you either feel belonging, you feel comfortable, and therefore you can perform, or you don't. So guess who feels belonging and comfortable and like they can perform in a male dominant culture? Men do, and guess who doesn't? Women. And so we see, what we see is not the culture, because the culture is invisible. Yeah. What we see is he's performing really well, she's not performing so well. And we make judgments about the quality of the individual based on that. We make, we draw the conclusion that he is stronger when actually we're not seeing a stronger performer. We're just in many cases seeing somebody who's more comfortable in the culture. There's the mini me phenomenon where, you know, people do, we all like little mini versions of ourselves. Yeah. You know, it makes us feel comfortable. It, it, it's very, diversity is very uncomfortable because these people join the team and they look at things completely differently. And we should love that. But actually what we really naturally love is the easy life of somebody who's just like us and brings more of the same. So the mini me phenomenons at play, and obviously if you've got, 90% plus men in leadership roles, then the mini-me's are going to look like men um, rather than women. Um, the, um, the umbrella theory plays a, a, a massive a massive role. Again, that drives the bias of believing that, um, mm -hmm. you know, the person who is most visible to us under the umbrella and the person who opens up the umbrella and says, hey, look at my work, is, is, is a stronger performer yep. than... That, you know, the women who often stay under the umbrella, get their heads down, do the work and believe that that is enough. Um, and that, you know, confidence versus competence is massive. We all love confidence. We all love confident people. We feel confident giving work, giving money, give, giving trust to confident people. And obviously the problem is women, for many reasons, are generally less confident than men. They've been trained that way in many instances from early life. So we often see the confidence instead of seeing the competence. And sometimes we choose the confidence instead um, of the competence. So I think the most important part of your question about it is, is, is what can we do about it? And, exactly. and there absolutely are things we can do. And um, the first thing is awareness. Um, people, so many people say to me, Jill, I wish I'd read your book 10 years ago. And I say, my love, I wish I'd read my book 10 years ago because <laughs> I wish I'd had awareness as a young career woman of all of these things. You know, it's fantastic in a way. I say I'm lucky in some ways that I didn't experience the male dominant culture and all of the barriers that come from it, the invisible barriers until I was later. But it, in many senses, I was blindsided because of that. I just, it, it absolutely came from nowhere for me because I'd never really, you know, been troubled by it. So I think awareness, one of the biggest gifts I'd give um, to women um, is 
awareness from a really, really young age. Just be ready for this stuff as you go into your career. Under read this book, read stuff like this, understand that even though you're not feeling it and you're steaming through like a train at the moment, these invisible things are there and they will come and get you at some point. So be aware, be ready. If you're prepared, you'll um, cope with them much, much better. Um, absolutely, you know, women can um, work on the umbrella theory, you know, mm -hmm. umbrellas down. Um, just let go of the myth of meritocracy. Let go of the belief that hundreds of women over the years have said to me that my work should be enough. Just doing great work should be enough. It isn't. Your work has to be visible. You have to be visible. And men in general know this. And they're much, much better at making sure that their work is, is visible. And that's why, you know, a lot of women get frustrated when they see somebody who they don't think is as strong as them getting a job or a promotion that they wanted. So I think just umbrella theory, know it and remember it every day and make time, make time for making your work and yourself visible just as much as you, you make time um, for your work. You know, at least an hour a day, you should be doing that ideally at mm -hmm. minimum um, an hour a week. And then I guess the, I mean, there's so much I could say on what we can do, but on the confidence point, um, a lot of people talk about confidence versus competence as if as if confidence is um, is kind of a you know a bad thing, and it isn't. It's a wonderful thing, and it's a human thing, as I said, to for us to like people who are confident, and I think it's something that women do need to work on. It's really finding that inner confidence, not faking confidence, mm -hmm. not performing confidence but really looking inside themselves for their confident core and, you know, going into a situation from that foundation and knowing, you know what, I am good at this and I am going to project that because we have to face the reality that the person who is projecting confidently might just be preferred, even if we're actually, even if our competence is absolutely phenomenal. So, I just think working on that, but in an authentic way, is super, super important as well. Great. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's really helpful. And I love how you call it umbrella theory. Um, I feel like often we call that type of work, you know, networking and showing your work. We link it often with office politics, which is another one of those bad words. <laughs> at least in the circle of women that I know. And I love your concept of umbrella theory much better because it doesn't make it feel slimy. I don't have a better adjective to use. You know what I mean? I mean, politics, somehow it's linked to things which we don't necessarily trust, unfortunately. So calling it office politics, it feels like a bad thing. But when you think about umbrella theory and the fact that we're doing such an amazing work, and it deserves to be seen. And people pay attention to what they see. I found it for myself, a huge mindset shift. It helped me a lot to see it in a positive way rather than something to be avoided or, or not authentic. You're so right. And, and I, I think that, that chapter on the umbrella theory is so important for that reason. Because, you know, there is a huge difference between office politics and networking. Mm -hmm. um, networking if it's if networking is used for evil and it's used 
for office politics, that's a bad thing. But networking, it's, networking in itself is a fantastic thing. Networking means that your work is seen, you are seen, you are known, you're getting you know, credit for you know, what you deserve to get credit for. Um, and by the way, you're learning. I mean, Valentina, you and I know since we've, um, you know, gone, um, you know, out into the world, into, um, you know, working more independently, the network out there is phenomenal. People are teaching me things every day. They're helping me every day. I'm helping them sometimes, I hope. Um, it's, it's incredible. Networking is a wonderful thing. And I think you're absolutely right to say that women if they have that nasty taste in their mouth when they think of network and i know a lot of women absolutely hate it they need to completely disassociate it from office politics for me office politics is you know when somebody stabs you in the back mm -hmm. or tries to take credit for your work yeah. you know most networking is is absolutely nothing to do with that that's just a bad person yeah um I want to ask you one more question um, about women of different generation now coming together into the office. I mean, I know there aren't that many women on top position, as we said, but there are some, and there are also men, uh, as obviously, as we said. And we are now spending almost three or four generations in the office or in a work environment. Do you see a change in how we should relate to each other? Um, do you see any difference in this younger generation that are coming in as opposed to the Gen X or very old millennium like me? Um, and what can we learn and how can we learn from, from the younger and maybe more advanced, more open? I don't know. Um, I'm again having my own bias here um, on these uh, generations. I, for me, it's it's just another um, another aspect of diversity, right? Age diversity is another wonderful form of of diversity, and I I I just believe in diversity and the power of it so profoundly, and that includes you know the age um, cut on it. Um, diversity, you know, to me, I, I never understand really why people don't get that it's a business driver. It's like, of course it's a business driver. If you're sitting in a room with a load of people who are all the same sex, the same color and the same age, um, how can you possibly be getting the diversity of thinking, insight, perspective, way of looking at the world as, as you would if you have a really diverse group of people. I mean, for me, if I were a CEO now, I would just be looking around my organization and saying, you know what, if I'm seeing a, de a dominant culture, I have a problem. I don't just have an organizational problem. I have a business problem because I'm missing diversity. So for me, age is a massive part of that. You know, how wonderful to have a huge range of ages in an organization, which has always been true, by the way. Yes. Um, you know, many organizations, you know, have often had, you know, people straight out of school, right mm -hmm. up to people, you know, the day before their retirement. Um, and I don't know, I couldn't tell you whether we leverage that diversity better now 
than we used to. Um, I don't know that, but I tell you what I do know is I love this new generation. <laughs> um, I love them. I mean, my sense is that um, not so long ago, um, the younger age groups would come into an organization and, and they may not have really felt it, but they, they would often do a pretty good performance of, you know, nodding their head to the way that the older generation did things and, and to what the older generation valued. Um, even if I don't know whether they, they, they were on the same page or not. This new generation doesn't do that at all. Um, this new generation, I, I feel they have a, a sense of the world they want, of the way they want to work, of the way they want to live. Um, they, they, they are not swallowing the massive, you know, you will work out all hours and get paid as much as possible and almost kill yourselves and get promoted as fast as possible and get, they're just not swallowing that tablet. That is just not necessarily what they want. It's just not the most important thing for them. And I think that's fantastic because I think, you know, that's what diversity is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's when you see things differently you're looking for different things and you actually say that and project that rather than trying to fit in, which is what, you know, most of us human beings have unfortunately the tendency to try to do when we land somewhere. So yeah, I just see it as, as another vector of diversity and that is so, so powerful. You know, what can we teach each other? What can this younger generation teach us? Um, about the world and about how to live in it and how to work in it. Indeed, I really hope that organizations all over the world start to really leverage it. Um, I see myself in that, let's say, old millennial joining the workforce and not necessarily agreeing, but having that view of, you know, the older generations know better and that's the way to go. And I can see, as you say, um, younger generation get into their voice much quicker or much faster than, than maybe we older millennials did. And, and it's such a, such a gift, you know, to have different opinions that I really hope it starts uh, to be leveraged. I hope so, too. As all forms of diversity, I mean, it's that, it, it's, it's that point, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not just about looking around the room and saying okay great we've got we've got ages represented we've got genders represented we've got sexuality represented we've got skin fantastic that's just the beginning it's, what it's really about is okay now are you listening to each other really listening to each other and 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 do you have a culture where you know the the 17 year old who's absolutely new to the workplace feels that they belong and that they are as comfortable and that they can contribute just like the, you know, the, the old girl in her fifties over there, like me, you know? Right. Um, before I let you go, um, I just want to ask you one question, which I'm borrowing from better host and more experienced host than me, such as um, Pavel of the White Spaces and, and Fungai Mettler of her uh, Raw Story podcast. They asked me this question and I loved it so much that I now want to ask it to uh, all my guests with a slight twist. So 
if you could go back and give an advice to your younger self, um, which one would be the advice you would give to yourself as you enter the workforce in the middle of your career and maybe at a more advanced stage? Oh, um, I think as I entered, what I would like to have said to myself is, Jill, you've got a lot of confidence. Um, it's gone pretty smoothly for you so far this life, mixed comprehensive school, you've never really even questioned whether you're equal to a, a boy or a man, but just be aware that there will come a day when it's going to get tough and your natural confident um, self and your natural way of doing things isn't going to work in the way it always has so be aware of that and be study that and be ready for that um and yeah have some strategies for that um so that would probably be the biggest thing i would have said which is a general um awareness point um in the middle and you know what i could even say this at the beginning as well but i'll put it in the um, in the middle section. Um, and I learned this from, you know, the super 7% women that I interviewed for the book. Um, and, you know, these are the women who do win at work yes. uh, because some do. Um, I learned many things from these women. They're amazing women. Um, but one of the biggest things that I learned from them is know your strengths and use them and don't try to be something that you're not, don't worry about it. You know, I'm a massive fan of the Strengths Finder tool. I use that for my coaching with individuals and teams. Um, knowing your strengths and staying away from the rest, as Hannah Kafaba says. Um, and just knowing that, you know, if you're in the right place, and you're using your strengths and you're being authentic and you're not trying to fit in. You're not trying to copy somebody else's strengths. You're not trying to copy someone else's way of doing it. You're just doing you. Um, and, you know, if you're in a culture, if you're in the right culture, that culture will value that and it will leverage those strengths and it will leverage you and it will reward you. Um and I think um, it took me too long, actually, in my career, in my life, to really have a very, very deep understanding of who I am and what my unique strengths are. Um, and I wish I'd really nailed those sooner because I think I would have known what to do with myself um, earlier um, if I had. Um, and then as it got more advanced, the advice... Um, I would like to have given myself is again to come back to this culture point don't waste and I would say this to all women if you find yourself in a culture that for whatever reason you don't feel that you can be yourself leverage your strengths and that they are valued um, and that they and you are absolutely fully leveraged and that you feel like you've, for whatever reason, found yourself in a culture where um, you feel you have to try to fit in rather than 
be your authentic self um and that you just don't really feel like it's a place that thinks you're marvelous um then don't waste too much time trying to or energy trying to fix that culture because one of the big things i've learned is that if you are if you're not part of a dominant culture it is very very difficult i would argue even impossible to change that culture a culture has to be changed by the people who um who own it and who run it um so i would i would say to myself um yeah jill have a go because you'll always have a go but don't waste too much time and energy much more important to get yourself out and into a culture where you are um comfortable you belong you're valued and you're leveraged and life is too short to uh, waste time trying to fix something that doesn't want to be fixed wow very wise words thank you very much jill for being with me today and um, for all your tips and sharing your knowledge i really appreciate it um, and it's been a pleasure talking to you It's been a joy talking to you too. Great questions, lots to think about. Um, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And for everybody that's listening, once more, Why Men Win at Work by Jill Whitty Collins. Read it. And once you've read it, men in your life so that they can also read it and turn into fist and support us as well. Well, thank you for listening. I'll talk to you all in two weeks at the next episode.